know if you've ever noticed that guest preachers appearing every once in a while in your church's pulpit often start their uh, greeting to the congregation just exactly the same way. I don't know if you've noticed that. It's, it's our habit, generally speaking, to stand up and hear say, it's a pleasure to be in Los Gatos this morning. When I was a child growing up in the church, I thought, I can predict what they're going to say, because they always say, it's a pleasure to be in Los Gatos this morning, unless they were a little extra wordy, then they might say, it's a privilege and a pleasure to be in Los Gatos this morning. All these years later, I, uh, I have to say I was way too hard on those guest preachers when I was a kid, because it is a pleasure. The reason preachers come into your pulpit and say those two words, be because there are no two better words to capture the experience of extending a preacher's experience with the body of Christ and the privilege of standing in this pulpit. So thank you for the chance to be here and especially for the warm welcome that I have already received at your hands. Let us pray. Be in our words, O oh Lord, and in our understanding. Be in our hearts and in the loves we bring. Be in our lives and set us to praise. For we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Scripture lesson is from Hebrews chapter 11 and 12, selected verses. Listen for the word of God to you. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. By faith, Enoch was taken so that he did not experience death. By faith, Noah, warned by God about events as yet unseen, respected the warning and built an ark. By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, he stayed. By faith, he received the power of procreation, even though he was too old. And Sarah herself was barren because he considered the one who had promised to be faithful. By faith, Abraham, when put to the test, offered up Isaac. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Joseph. By faith, Moses. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as if on dry land. And what more should I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Yet all these, though they were commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better, so that they would not, apart from us, be finished. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Amen. One of the most effective pastors I know was telling me recently about the day that she answered God's call to faith. It was near the end of the summer, 
day probably something like this one, 20 some years ago, and after one of those long, classic, oh no, not me, Lord, struggles. On the morning in question, she left the San Juan Island camp where she worked to take her day off in town. There were plenty of friends to see her off. Counselor of the year, blonde, high energy, popular, the kind of person whose absence produced a noticeable drop in the camp's fun factor. On this particular afternoon, she proceeded to a lovely little jewelry store on the resort side of town, purchased a plain silver band, and took it to the chapel at the edge of the ocean. After long moments of seeking God in prayer, she placed the ring on her finger and made her vow. Sunlight fell through the stained glass window, purple against her skin. A sense of fullness welled up. Leaving the chapel, she said, she stood for a moment looking out across the sea. After a quiet supper, she returned to the camp, the glow of the afternoon still on her face. Immediately, things began to go wrong. There had been a fight between her cabin and the bluebirds. A petty jealousy that had been simmering between counselors blew up. Her friends stopped talking to her. One of her girls was expelled. A camp mascot was hit by a car. Her mother called to say that her father was ill. And the young man in the kitchen crew, who had been so attentive, was seen walking in the moonlight with someone else. After just two weeks of wearing that silver band, the silver band that had seemed so luminous when she first put it on her finger, the silver band that she'd intended to wear always as a reminder of her vow, the ring that was supposed to be assigned to her and to the world of her faithfulness, she took it off. It was the middle of the afternoon. She was swimming with the two friends she had left in the world. She threw it as far as she could, she said, in the general direction of Japan and watched it splash. Nobody, my friend said with a chuckle as she finished telling her story, nobody calls herself. Nobody calls herself to ministry Nobody calls himself to faith. It takes much more than that. Not only is two weeks pretty much the record for keeping yourself going along God's path, but if God really did leave us to our own devices, most of us would be off the track completely, stumbling around somewhere like newborn kittens, purblind and clumsy, falling all over each other and our own feet. Nobody follows Jesus in this race. Nobody even finds the starting gate on their own. The writer of the book of Hebrews has a more picturesque way of talking about it. It takes a cloud. It takes a cloud. It takes a village. It takes a cloud of witnesses. It takes, heaven help us Presbyterians, a committee. It takes a cloud, it takes the grace of God working through that, what that wonderful old Baptist preacher Carlisle Marnie used to call the balcony people. That's what it takes for us to come to faith and persevere in faith. It takes those people who sit in the balconies of our lives and cheer us on. 
People are not born knowing, the book of Hebrews tells us. People are not born knowing. People need their faith heroes and their role models, their spiritual Indiana Jones and Aunt Bees cheering them on up and over and over again. God uses one generation of the faithful to train up the next. And that's necessary because of the simple fact that people get discouraged. The writer of Hebrews knows and agrees. I don't know how much you know about the book of Hebrews. It's a fabulous, fabulous book. There are some interesting things to wonder about. It's the only book of the Bible that I know that some scholars believe may have been written by a woman. Priscilla, a leader in the first century church, has been suggested as a possible author. We don't, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, so it's possible. I like to think it might be true. For one thing, Hebrews is a beautifully written book. You know, you have Isaiah in the Old Testament. You have Hebrews in the New Testament. Beautiful writing. I like to think that that might have been the work of a woman. It's a nice idea. I don't suppose this side of heaven we will ever know. The other thing we might have to ask Jesus about when we see him is just the, who the Hebrews were. Who the Hebrews were, we don't know. Not even the Biblical Studies Department of San Francisco Theological Seminary knows the answer to that question, and if anybody would, they would. But nobody knows. Hebrews, it's a very general title. It doesn't tell us much about the first readers of this book or what situation they were in. If we want to know those things, we have to work from inference. We have to look for clues in the text itself, tease out a bit of information. Luckily, the writer of Hebrews gives us some very good clues, and this is, this is what we know about Hebrews and how I can stand up here today and say we know that the Hebrews were discouraged. According to the first two chapters of the book, the Hebrews being addressed in Hebrews 11 and 12 were experienced Christians, not newbies. They are one step removed from the original message of the gospel from the time of Jesus, say they might be eight or nine decades out. They're distant in time from the very start of Christianity, but not in practice. They've been around the block. They're experienced Christians, and chapter 2 says they are in danger of drifting away. From chapters 5 and 6, we can see that they are not only experienced Christians, but educated ones. The writer chides them, by this time, all of you ought to be teachers, she says. Certainly, I would not expect any of you to be needing basic instruction in the faith. They're experienced, they're educated, and finally, from chapter 10, the one just before today's passages, we learn that the, that the Hebrews are people who need to hold fast. They need to hold fast. They need to show endurance, chapter 10. They need to persevere. The memory of those who have gone before should stir them, the writer says in chapter 10. It should be like a spiritual be one shot right into their arms. 
Okay, so I'm updating the writer's metaphor, but, but the effect is the same. The Hebrews were discouraged. They looked out at the world around them. They looked down the road ahead of them. They thought back on the many years that had been since Jesus had walked the earth, and they were discouraged. Discouraged. Something we know something about. <clears throat> Shall we talk about how distant we are from the country we want to be? Where the economy works for more and more instead of fewer and fewer? What is it about minimum wage, affordable housing, the widening wealth gap that we can't seem to get our fingers around? Shall we talk about the cracks in the foundation of our culture as an each-for-himself philosophy grows and our efforts to keep us all running together in the same direction flounder. It's discouraging. We are discouraged, even on a gorgeous summer day like this. We have to admit, if we lift our eyes and look down the road ahead of us, we know we have more work to do as a country, a culture, a church, we have a ways to go. So many things, right? So many things that threaten to get between us. So many things that threaten to tear us apart. When exactly do you think did we cross the line from strained civility in our country to political violence? Last year, threats of violence against members of Congress were at an all-time high. How many do you suppose? 9,600. According to the FBI, there, were 27, there are currently 2,700 open cases on their books of domestic terrorism, twice what the rate was just two years ago. Recent studies show roughly equal percentage of liberals and conservatives agree with the statement that violence against the government is justifiable. That, of course, was before this week when an FBI office was attacked by an armed person in Ohio. It's discouraging. We are discouraged. So many things threaten us, our culture, our country, our communities. The good news from Hebrews may come as something of a surprise. We may be surprised, especially those of us who look around the church and look for answers in our larger church, the larger denomination, the Protestant church, the Christian church, and we notice a certain thinning in the ranks. It may come as something of a surprise to us who look around faith's racetrack and sometimes we feel that we are doing our doggonest to follow Jesus disappearing back down the tarmac, while some other runners seem to be doing their best to trip us up. The good news from Hebrews may come as a shock to people like us, people who are so trying to hold the path of faith and keep going. Look up, Hebrews says. Look up. Take your eyes off your feet and look up to the balconies of your life. 
You may be surprised, Hebrews says, what that shift in perspective reveals. Namely, we are not really running on a thinning field or against each other or on top of each other's toes. In fact, Hebrews says, we are not really running apart from each other. We are not really running apart from each other. We are running together, Hebrews is preaching to us today. We are running together, one big cloud, one big herd, one tsunami of forward surging runners. You know what that makes me think of? More like those crazy runners that line up every year for the beta breakers. You know, in recent years, this cobbled together option that's become so popular, now they have it on the race registration form. Maybe some of you have done this, the beta breakers. You, you fill out the registration form, state your name. The second question is, will you be running as a single, double, or centipede? <laughs> the race we are running is so much more like that, like a bunch of centipedes pounding down the track on the beta breakers, a mass of people running together. Heroes of the past and heroes yet unborn, those who answer the role when it is called up yonder and those who answer it down here. How much more strongly could the writer put it than she does in chapter 11, verse 40? They, apart from us, will not be finished. They, apart from us, those people that have gone before, those people that silently, invisibly long, run alongside us, they, apart from us, will not be finished. In other words, we all finish together. We are all in this race together, so together. That's what it takes for people to know the call of God on their life, to persevere in the life of faith. People are not born knowing, Hebrews reminds us, they need their faith heroes. Over and over again, God uses us to train up that generation that's coming behind us. People need the encouragement of those who have gone before and of Christians sitting around them. They need it. We need it. Like sharks, Christians are creatures who need to keep moving forward, Hebrews suggests. Run or die. Lift your eyes to the stands and to those who have gone before who are cheering you on. Keep moving forward, Hebrews urges us, because when inertia sets in, when fear or greed or anger weighs you down, you get in trouble. Spiritual trouble. As Hebrews knows, it takes a cloud. It takes a cloud. It takes a congregation. It takes a word from the alto who sits next to you in choir, a smile from the guest speaker in your adult education class. It takes a timely comment from your wonderful pastor. It takes a compliment from a stranger, an unexpected note from a classmate or a faith story shared between seats 38B and 38C over Omaha. It takes congregations like this one who raise up their children to know the voice of God when it comes to them. It takes people like you who are not afraid to say to a college kid or a youth worker or a graduate student sitting next to you in a pew, maybe you should think about going to seminary. It takes all kinds of people 
people who are not afraid to say to the discouraged, you can do it, or God is faithful, or keep on, you're almost there, or I'm holding you in prayer. It takes elders and deacons and Sunday school teachers and pew sitters. It takes saints who are emboldened by Priscilla and Jesus to say, God has something good for you. Don't stop. Go on. So, my friends, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us toss toward Japan every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us and run together and run together and run together the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Amen.